This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sheila Morton in Jefferson City, Tennessee. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 3, Chapter 6, Section C. Suspense had so much increased Emily's anxiety as to the prisoner at Udolpho, that finding it impracticable to speak alone with Bertrand on that subject, she renewed her questions in the presence of Ugo. But he either was or pretended to be entirely ignorant concerning the stranger. When he had dismissed the question, he talked with Ugo on some subject which led to the mention of Signor Orsino, and of the affair that had banished him from Venice, respecting which Emily had ventured to ask a few questions. Ugo appeared to be well acquainted with the circumstances of that tragical event, and related some minute particulars that both shocked and surprised her, for it appeared very extraordinary how such particulars could be known to any but to persons present when the assassination was committed. "'He was of rank,' said Bertrand, "'or the State would not have troubled itself to inquire after his assassins. The Signor has been lucky hitherto. This is not the first affair of the kind he has had upon his hands. And to be sure, when a gentleman has no other way of getting redress, why, he must take this. Aye, said Ugo, and why is not this as good as another? This is the way to have justice done at once, without more ado. If you go to the law, you must stay till the judges please, and may lose your cause at last. Why, the best way, then, is to make sure of your right, while you can, and execute justice yourself. Yes, yes, rejoined Bertrand. If you wait till justice is done, you may stay long enough. Why, if I want a friend of mine properly served, how am I to get my revenge? Ten to one they will tell me he is in the right, and I am in the wrong. Or if a fellow has got possession of property, which I think ought to be mine, why, I may wait till I starve, perhaps, before the law will give it me, and then, after all, the judge may say, the estate is his. What is to be done, then? Why, the case is plain enough. I must take it at last. Emily's horror at this conversation was heightened by a suspicion that the latter part of it was pointed against herself, and that these men had been commissioned by Montoni to execute a similar kind of justice in his cause. But I was speaking of Signor Orsino, resumed Bertrand. He is one of those who love to do justice at once. I remember, about ten years ago, the Signor had a quarrel with a cavallero of Milan. The story was told me then, and it is still fresh in my head. They quarrelled about a lady that the Signor liked, and she was perverse enough to prefer the gentleman of Milan, and even carried her whim so far as to marry him. This provoked the Signor as well it might, for he had tried to talk reason to her a long while, and used to send people to serenade her under her window of a night, and used to make verses about her, and would swear she was the handsomest lady in Milan. But all would not do. Nothing would bring her to reason. And as I said, she went so far at last as to marry this other cavallero. This made the Signor wrath with a vengeance. He resolved to be even with her, though, and he watched his opportunity and did not wait long, for soon after the marriage they set out for Padua, nothing doubting, I warrant, of what was preparing for them. The cavaliero thought to be sure he was to be called to no account, but was to go off triumphant. But he was soon made to know another sort of story. "'What, then, the lady had promised to have, Signor Orsino?' said Ugo. "'Promised? No!' 
replied Bertrand. She had not wit enough even to tell him she liked him, as I heard, but the contrary, for she used to say from the first she never meant to have him, and this was what provoked the signor so, and with good reason, for who likes to be told that he is disagreeable? And this was saying as good. It was enough to tell him this. She need not have gone and married another. What, she married then on purpose to plague the signor? said Ugo. I don't know as for that, replied Bertrand. They said, indeed, that she had had a regard for the other gentleman a great while, but that is nothing to the purpose. She should not have married him, and then the signor would not have been so much provoked. She might have expected what was to follow. It was not to be supposed he would bear her ill usage tamely, and she might thank herself for what happened. But, as I said, they set out for Padua, she and her husband, and the road lay over some barren mountains like these. This suited the signor's purpose well. He watched the time of their departure, and sent his men after them with directions what to do. They kept their distance till they saw their opportunity, and this did not happen till the second day's journey, when, the gentleman having sent his servants forward to the next town, maybe to have horses in readiness, the signor's men quickened their pace, and overtook the carriage in a hollow between two mountains, where the woods prevented the servants from seeing what passed, though they were then not far off. When we came up, we fired our tromboni, but missed. Emily turned pale at these words, and then hoped she had mistaken them, while Bertrand proceeded. The gentleman fired again, but he was soon made to alight, and it was as he turned to call his people that he was struck. It was the most dexterous feat you ever saw. He was struck in the back with three stilettos at once. He fell and was dispatched in a minute, but the lady escaped, for the servants had heard the firing, and came up before she could be taken care of. "'Bertrand,' said the signor, when his men returned. "'Bertrand!' exclaimed Emily, pale with horror, on whom not a syllable of this narrative had been lost. "'Bertrand, did I say?' rejoined the man with some confusion. "'No, Giovanni, but I have forgot where I was. "'Bertrand,' said the signor. "'Bertrand again!' said Emily in a faltering voice. "'Why do you repeat that name?' Bertrand swore. "'What signifies it?' he proceeded, what the man was called. "'Bertrand, or Giovanni, or Roberto. It's all one for that. You have put me out twice with that question. "'Bertrand, or Giovanni, or what you will. Bertrand,' said the signor, "'if your comrades had done their duty as well as you, I should not have lost the lady.' "'Go, my honest fellow, and be happy with this.' He gave him a purse of gold, and little enough, too, considering the service he had done him. "'Aye, aye,' said Ugo. "'Little enough, little enough.' Emily now breathed with difficulty, and could scarcely support herself. When first she saw these men, their appearance and their connection with Montoni had been sufficient to impress her with distrust. But now, when one of them had betrayed himself to be a murderer, and she saw herself at the approach of night under his guidance, among wild and solitary mountains, and going she scarcely knew whither, the most agonizing terror seized her which was the less supportable from the necessity she found herself under of concealing all symptoms of it from her companions. Reflecting on the character and the menaces of Montoni, it appeared not improbable that he had delivered her to them for the purpose of having her murdered, and of thus securing to himself, without further opposition or delay, the estates for which he had so long and so desperately contended. 
yet if this was his design there appeared no necessity for sending her to such a distance from the castle for if any dread of discovery had made him unwilling to perpetrate the deed there a much nearer place might have sufficed for the purpose of concealment these considerations however did not immediately occur to emily with whom so many circumstances conspired to rouse terror that she had no power to oppose it or to inquire coolly into its grounds and if she had done so still there were many appearances which would too well have justified her most terrible apprehensions she did not now dare to speak to her conductors at the sound of whose voices she trembled and when now and then she stole a glance at them their countenances seen imperfectly through the gloom of evening served to confirm her fears the sun had now been set some time heavy clouds whose lower skirts were tinged with sulphurous crimson lingered in the west and threw a reddish tint upon the pine forests which sent forth a solemn sound as the breeze rolled over them the hollow moan struck upon emily's heart and served to render more gloomy and terrific every object around her the mountains shaded in twilight the gleaming torrent hoarsely roaring the black forests and the deep glen broken into rocky recesses high overshadowed by cypress and sycamore and winding into long obscurity to this glen emily as she sent forth her anxious eye thought there was no end no hamlet or even cottage was seen and still no distant bark of watch-dog or even faint far-off halloo came on the wind in a tremulous voice she now ventured to remind the guides that it was growing late and to ask again how far they had to go but they were too much occupied by their own discourse to attend to her question which she forbore to repeat lest it should provoke a surly answer having however soon after finished their supper the men collected the fragments into their wallet and proceeded along this winding glen in gloomy silence while emily again mused upon her own situation and concerning the motives of montoni for involving her in it that it was for some evil purpose towards herself she had no doubt and it seemed that if he did not intend to destroy her with a view of immediately seizing her estates he meant to reserve her a while in concealment for some more terrible design for one that might equally gratify his avarice and still more his deep revenge at this moment remembering signor brocchio and his behaviour in the corridor a few preceding nights the latter supposition horrible as it was strengthened in her belief yet why remove her from the castle where deeds of darkness had she feared been often executed with secrecy from chambers perhaps with many a foul and midnight murder stained the dread of what she might be going to encounter was now so excessive that it sometimes threatened her senses and often as she went she thought of her late father and of all he would have suffered could he have foreseen the strange and dreadful events of her future life and how anxiously he would have avoided that fatal confidence which committed his daughter to the care of a woman so weak as was madame montoni so romantic and improbable indeed did her present situation appear to emily herself particularly when she compared it with the repose and beauty of her early days that there were moments when she could almost have believed herself the victim of frightful visions glaring upon a disordered fancy restrained by the presence of her guides from expressing her terrors their acuteness was at length lost in gloomy despair the dreadful view of what might await her hereafter rendered her almost indifferent to the surrounding dangers she now looked with little emotion on the wild dingles and the gloomy road and mountains whose outlines were only distinguishable through the dusk 
objects which but lately had affected her spirits so much as to awaken horrid views of the future, and to tinge these with their own gloom. It was now so nearly dark that the travellers who proceeded only by the slowest pace could scarcely discern their way. The clouds, which seemed charged with thunder, passed slowly along the heavens, showing at intervals the trembling stars, while the groves of cypress and sycamore that overhung the rocks waved high in the breeze as it swept over the glen and then rushed among the distant woods. Emily shivered as it passed. "'Where is the torch?' said Ugo. "'It grows dark.' "'Not so dark yet,' replied Bertrand, "'but we may find our way, and tis best not light the torch before we can help, for it may betray us if any straggling party of the enemy is abroad.' Ugo muttered something which Emily did not understand, and they proceeded in darkness, while she almost wished that the enemy might discover them, for from change there was something to hope, since she could scarcely imagine any situation more dreadful than her present one. As they moved slowly along, her attention was surprised by a thin, tapering flame that appeared by fits at the point of the pike which Bertrand carried, resembling what she had observed on the lance of the sentinel the night Madame Montoni died, and which he had said was an omen. The event immediately following it appeared to justify the assertion, and a superstitious impression had remained on Emily's mind, which the present appearance confirmed. She thought it was an omen of her own fate, and watched it successively vanish and return in gloomy silence, which was at length interrupted by Bertrand. "'Let us light the torch,' said he, "'and get under shelter of the woods. A storm is coming on. Look at my lance.' He held it forth with the flame tapering at its point. "'Aye,' said Ugo, "'you are not one of those that believe in omens. We have left cowards at the castle who would turn pale at such a sight.' I have often seen it before a thunderstorm. It is an omen of that, and one is coming now, sure enough. The clouds flash fast already. Emily was relieved by this conversation from some of the terrors of superstition, but those of reason increased as, waiting while Ugo searched for a flint to strike fire, she watched the pale lightning gleam over the woods they were about to enter, and illumine the harsh countenances of her companions. Ugo could not find a flint, and Bertrand became impatient, for the thunder sounded hollowly at a distance and the lightning was more frequent. Sometimes it revealed the nearer recesses of the woods, or, displaying some opening in their summits, illumined the ground beneath with partial splendor, the thick foliage of the trees preserving the surrounding scene in deep shadow. At length Ugo found a flint and the torch was lighted. The men then dismounted, and having assisted Emily, led the mules towards the woods that skirted the glen, on the left, over broken ground frequently interrupted with brushwood and wild plants, which she was often obliged to make a circuit to avoid. She could not approach these woods without experiencing keener sense of her danger. Their deep silence, except when the wind swept among their branches, and impenetrable glooms shone partially by the sudden flash and then by the red glare of the torch, which served only to make darkness visible, were circumstances that contributed to renew all her most terrible apprehensions. She thought, too, that at this moment the countenances of her conductors displayed more than their usual fierceness, mingled with a kind of lurking exultation which they seemed endeavouring to disguise. To her affrighted fancy it occurred that they were leading her into these woods to complete the will of Montoni by her murder. 
The horrid suggestion called a groan from her heart, which surprised her companions, who turned round quickly towards her, and she demanded why they led her thither, beseeching them to continue their way along the open glen, which she represented to be less dangerous than the woods in a thunderstorm. "'No, no,' said Bertrand. "'We know best where the danger lies. See how the clouds open over our heads?' Besides, we can glide under cover of the woods with less hazard of being seen should any of the enemy be wandering this way. By holy St. Peter and all the rest of them, I've as stout a heart as the best, as many a poor devil could tell if he were alive again, but what can we do against numbers? What are you whining about? said Ugo contemptuously. Who fears numbers? Let them come, though they were as many as the Signor's castle could hold. I would show the knaves what fighting is. For you, I would lay you quietly in a dry ditch, where you might peep out and see me put the rogues to flight. Who talks of fear? Bertrand replied with an horrible oath that he did not like such jesting, and a violent altercation ensued which was at length silenced by the thunder, whose deep volley was heard afar, rolling onward till it burst over their heads in sounds that seemed to shake the earth to its centre. The ruffians paused and looked upon each other. Between the boles of the trees the blue lightning flashed and quivered along the ground, while, as Emily looked under the boughs, the mountains beyond frequently appeared to be clothed in livid flame. At this moment, perhaps, she felt less fear of the storm than did either of her companions, for other terrors occupied her mind. The men now rested under an enormous chestnut tree, and fixed their pikes in the ground at some distance, on the iron points of which Emily repeatedly observed the lightning play, and then glide down them into the earth. "'I would we were well in the Signor's castle,' said Bertrand. "'I know not why he should send us on this business. Hark, how it rattles above there! I could almost find in my heart to turn priest and pray. Ugo, hast got a rosary?' No, replied Ugo, I leave it to cowards like thee to carry rosaries. I carry a sword. As much good it may do thee in fighting against the storm, said Bertrand. Another peal, which was reverberated in tremendous echoes among the mountains, silenced them for a moment. As it rolled away, Ugo proposed going on. We are only losing time here, said he, for the thick boughs of the woods will shelter us as well as this chestnut tree. They again led the mules forward between the boles of the trees and over pathless grass that concealed their high knotted roots. The rising wind was now heard contending with the thunder as it rushed furiously among the branches above, and brightened the red flame of the torch, which threw a stronger light forward among the woods, and showed their gloomy recesses to be suitable resorts for the wolves, of which Ugo had formerly spoken. At length the strength of the wind seemed to drive the storm before it, for the thunder rolled away into distance, and was only faintly heard. After travelling through the woods for nearly an hour, during which the elements seemed to have returned to repose, the travellers gradually ascending from the glen found themselves upon the open brow of a mountain, with a wide valley extending in misty moonlight at their feet, and above the blue sky trembling through the few thin clouds that lingered after the storm, and were sinking slowly to the verge of the horizon. Emily's spirits, now that she had quitted the woods, began to revive, for she considered that, if these men had received an order to destroy her, they would probably have executed their barbarous purpose in the solitary wild, from whence they had just emerged, where the deed would have been shrouded from every human eye. 
Reassured by this reflection and by the quiet demeanor of her guides, Emily, as they proceeded silently in a kind of sheep track that wound along the skirts of the woods, which ascended on the right, could not survey the sleeping beauty of the vale to which they were declining without a momentary sensation of pleasure. It seemed varied with woods, pastures, and sloping grounds, and was screened to the north and the east by an amphitheatre of the Apennines, whose outline on the horizon was here broken into varied and elegant forms. To the west and the south the landscape extended indistinctly into the lowlands of Tuscany. "'There is the sea yonder,' said Bertrand, as if he had known that Emily was examining the twilight view. "'Yonder in the west, though we cannot see it.' Emily already perceived a change in the climate from that of the wild and mountainous tract she had left, and as she continued descending, the air became perfumed by the breath of a thousand nameless flowers among the grass, called forth by the late rain. So soothingly beautiful was the scene around her, and so strikingly contrasted to the gloomy grandeur of those to which she had long been confined, and to the manners of the people who moved among them, that she could almost have fancied herself again at La Vallée, and wondering why Montoni had sent her hither, could scarcely believe that he had selected so enchanting a spot for any cruel design. It was, however, probably not the spot, but the persons, who happened to inhabit it, and to whose care he could safely commit the execution of his plans, whatever they might be, that had determined his choice. She now ventured again to inquire whether they were near the place of their destination, and was answered by Ugo that they had not far to go. "'Only to the wood of chestnuts in the valley yonder,' said he, "'there by the brook that sparkles with the moon.' I wish I was once at rest there with a flask of good wine and a slice of Tuscany bacon. Emily's spirits revived when she heard that the journey was so nearly concluded, and saw the wood of chestnuts in an open part of the vale on the margin of the stream. In a short time they reached the entrance of the wood, and perceived between the twinkling leaves a light streaming from a distant cottage window. They proceeded along the edge of the brook to where the trees, crowding over it, excluded the moonbeams, but a long line of light from the cottage above was seen on its dark, tremulous surface. Bertrand now stepped on first, and Emily heard him knock and call loudly at the door. As she reached it, the small upper casement, where the light appeared, was unclosed by a man, who, having inquired what they wanted, immediately descended, let them into a neat, rustic cot, and called up his wife to set refreshments before the travellers. As this man conversed, rather apart, with Bertrand, Emily anxiously surveyed him. He was a tall, but not robust, peasant of a sallow complexion, and had a shrewd and cunning eye. His countenance was not of a character to win the ready confidence of youth, and there was nothing in his manner that might conciliate a stranger. Ugo called impatiently for supper, and in a tone as if he knew his authority here to be unquestionable. "'I expected you an hour ago,' said the peasant, "'for I have had Signor Montoni's letter these three hours, and I and my wife had given you up and gone to bed. How did you fare in the storm?' "'Ill enough.' replied Ugo, ill enough, and we are like to fare ill enough here, too, unless you will make more haste. Get us more wine, and let us see what you have to eat. The peasant placed before them all that his cottage afforded, ham, wine, figs, and grapes of such size and flavor as Emily had seldom tasted. 
After taking refreshment, she was shown by the peasant's wife to her little bedchamber, where she asked some questions concerning Montoni, to which the woman, whose name was Dorina, gave reserved answers, pretending ignorance of his excellence's intention in sending Emily hither, but acknowledging that her husband had been apprised of the circumstance. Perceiving that she could obtain no intelligence concerning her destination, Emily dismissed Dorina and retired to repose. But all the busy scenes of her past and the anticipated ones of the future came to her anxious mind and conspired with the sense of her new situation to banish sleep. End of Volume 3, Chapter 6